Tampa. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed Ben Samar. Today is um, likely the last day of Ramadan. It's been 30 days of fasting for Samar and I and Muslims around the world. Uh, but on today's program, we're not really going to be talking about Ramadan that much, maybe just a little bit. But we'll mostly be speaking about what's ha happening in Sudan as rival army generals and um, military units are fighting in a struggle uh, to for who controls that country. We'll also have a uh, guest speaker, expert on Sudan, that will be joining us to talk about that. Um, and also, um, not sure if we're going to have time for phone calls, but we will let you know. This is True Talk on WMNF, and uh, we'll be right back after this short music break. Welcome to 
True Talk. Uh, welcome back to True Talk on WMNF um, 80.5 with Ahmed and Summer. This was a song from Sudan, Alila Bilil. Like, nice uh, music, night. Ahmed. Nice selection. I like mm. it. And it mentions right. uh, Egypt or uh, the Nile. It mentions the Nile. There's a Nile in Sudan. Yeah, I know. So, and they're it's walking the... on Nile at night. So um, it's a much cheerful, more cheerful song than uh, what's actually happening there. Nobody's walking on Nile at night and having tea, despite the fact that it's Ramadan. Food is running short. Water is running short. Electricity is uh, non-existent. Country is basically uh, at a standstill. And, um, uh, you know, more and more people are dying. And, um, you know, there are thousands of injuries as uh, warring or rival generals that were once allies are now fighting out in the streets of the capital for control of the country. Um, At the helm are uh, basically the chief of the army, um, a guy named uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. He's a general chief general. of the army and what is called the rapid support forces leader. And his name is Hamdan, General Hamdan. And uh, they're basically in a power struggle. Uh, Hamiditi. Right as Hamiditi. Okay. Hamiditi. Uh, This is how I think how they pronounce him. This is like a nickname for him. Um, oh, that's his nickname. But yeah. Hamdan is his original name. Yeah, his name is so, Muhammad Hamdan Dagalo. But they call him Hamiditi, like all the newspapers. And uh, just in case people get confused, that's the name that they are using. Yeah, Hamiditi, Hamiditi is Hamdan. His official name is Muhammad Hamdan Dagalo. Um, even though the 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 ga sound is actually a Q, Qaf. But, you know, different, uh, Sudan is an Arab nation. They have an Arab, different, you know, dialect of the Arabic language. Uh, Sudan is uh, located just south of Egypt uh, in the northeast part of of Africa. And um, it's a big country. It goes all the way to the... um, I guess to the Red Sea. Um, so, but it's been a both sides were actually united um, in the past few years when they ousted the long-serving leader, president of Sudan, Al Bashir, and since then there are promises to hand over control to a civilian government. And as that process got closer, now uh, part of that is you know who will report to who or which unit will be subordinate to the other. Of course, uh, for some reason, you know, each side thinks they're the ones that should be uh, at the head of the military or in control of the military. It's interesting that the uh, well, the group that's called the Rapid Support Forces were at one point a kind of a militia force that was a, a bit autonomous. They're called the Janjaweed, and they were uh, instrumental uh, and allies of the former president, al-Bashir, and they were uh, fighting to quell rebellions in the Darfur region. So this is what 
basically the background of some of these uh, individuals. And now they're fighting it out in the streets. So we're going to, um, we'll be discussing that with our expert when they come in. Summer, it's our last day of Ramadan, possibly, most likely. Allah. Can you explain to our listeners why it's most likely? Because uh, supposedly we have to, somebody needs to sight the moon. And, uh, astrom and from the astronomical point of view, it's very, very difficult to see the moon with your own naked eye because of the distance between the moon and the sun. And usually it is immediately, I think, after sunset that we have to, uh, to sight it. Right, so there's there's a, sh a short window. Yeah, some, uh, I just, uh, somebody just sent me that uh, the local newspaper was saying, without re any reference to Ramadan, that today you can sight the moon only for 52 minutes uh, starting sunset. So if anybody sees it, the moon in a Muslim country, uh, this could mean uh, seeing it. It all depends, Ahmed, uh, on the ifta, like what is the consensus among the uh, the religious authority in a given country. Yes, the um, science can say we cannot cite it, but some countries, some Muslim countries would stick only to the science and some uh, countries would stick to the Sunnah, the tradition of the Prophet, which he has a saying where it says, when you see the moon. So yeah, some just people- Just to explain some, some background yeah. on that. The, right, the yeah. Ramadan, the month of Ramadan is a lunar month. So it starts with the start of the new moon. And, you know, this may sound like foreign language. Some people that don't really monitor the cycle of the moon, but the, you know, the moon has different phases. And when it's a full moon and a quarter moon and, you know, these, they're actually on a calendar. So there's a specific calendar. There's a moon rise and a moon set, just like there's a sunrise and a sunset. And the uh, Muslim uh, month of Ramadan, just like uh, all the month, in the Muslim calendar, start and end with the uh, start and end of the moon. The Jewish community also follows a lunar calendar for their holidays. So um, there is, because there's no one pope, for example, or one body that speaks for all Islam worldwide, it's really left to independent or local countries um, as far as how to decide when the month of Ramadan starts and ends. Most of the time it's done by their religious leaders, but sometimes their political leaders get involved. So sometimes you actually have a situation where neighboring countries like Egypt, Libya, Tunis, or Algeria, or Saudi Arabia will be starting and ending Ramadan on different days or celebrating on different days. This year, it seems like unanimously, well, people started Ramadan at the same time. Um, the moon sighting happens tonight. It's actually, you know, it'll be sunsetting soon uh, in that part of the world. And they'll start sighting it and they'll start declaring whether tomorrow is the holiday of Eid, which ends, marks the end of the month of Ramadan. And uh, whether it's not, now, like Summer said, some other countries, they just go by a calendar. They already know, you know, months in advance what day it will be. But imagine being in that community or that country where you basically find out the night before the holiday that, hey, tomorrow's the holiday. So it makes it kind of interesting summer. Yeah, uh, yes, it's true. But I think Dr. Khalid uh, Midani is with us. Uh, Ahmed, let me uh, introduce Dr. Khalid. Uh, he is 
Khalid Mustafa Midani, Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies, Chair of um, African Studies at McGill University. Dr. Midani, I think we had him once uh, on the show. He is also the author of uh, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. And Dr. Midani will talk to us today about Sudan. Good morning, Dr. Dr. Madani, you need to unmute your mic, please. Yes, uh, good morning. Good morning, uh, Ramadan Mubarak, and inshallah, Eid Fitr uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, I hope. Allah ibarik. Dr. Medani Ahmed was just uh, at the beginning talking about uh, very, very briefly about what was what is actually going on, that there is some sort of a vendetta or competition between between military men. But for those people who don't really know much about the modern history of Sudan, I don't know. I know we have like 40 minutes, but maybe very briefly, if you could start but by, by telling us like what is Sudan uh, and uh, to set the tone for the discussion later on because it might be sounding complex for the people to follow these names and groups but give us a little brief of Sudan in the past 20-30 years what kind of a system it had political system it had yes thank you I mean I actually think the historical background and political history of Sudan is essential to understanding the present conflict and uh, uh, thank you for giving uh, me the time to uh, give some context to the present conflict because it's a little bit more complicated than just a struggle between two generals right now. Um, the important aspect of the political history um, is um, has to do very much with a history of both uh, democratic uh, experiments, um, at least um, three democratic uh, periods that were short-lived, um, in um, the 1960s and in the 1980s, um, which were very, very important uh, democratic experiments, although they were short-lived. But however, like many African countries and other Middle East countries as well, it's been largely a history of authoritarian regimes. Uh, but most importantly, uh, with respect to the present conflict, I would um, begin with um, the summer of 1989 um, in that uh, in that period, in that year, um, the political history of Sudan changed um, in very dramatic ways. Um, the most important aspect is that there was a military coup in the summer of 1989 that was led by an Islamist movement at the time called the National Islamic Front that essentially um, uh, co collaborated with mid-ranking officers, the head of which uh, was at the time uh, General Omar Bashir, um, and they upended and, uh, a democratic experiment that had followed um, a popular uprising in 1985 that overthrew the previous dictator, Jafar Nimeri. Uh, following uh, the overthrow of Nimeri, uh, there was, um, and the popular uprising, there was a short-lived period between 1986 to 1989, where political parties attempted to usher in uh, consolidated civilian democracy. Um, unfortunately, during that democracy, uh, the Islamist movement had a great strength in the country. And at that time, um, there was a deep conflict, a civil war between northerners, um, you know, mostly Muslim Arab speakers, Arabs uh, in general, um, 
and uh, the Southerners, who mostly um, Christian and followers of, of other African religions. A long drawn out civil war that uh, lasted uh, 40 years uh, beginning uh, in independence, uh, even before independence in 1955. Um, during that democratic experiment, the civilian political parties under pressure uh, from the Southerners and their uh, military victories had agreed to postpone what was the number one um, uh, kind of demand of the Islamist movement at the time, and that was to freeze uh, the implementation of Islamic law in the South, because the majority of Southerners weren't Muslims. Uh, just a few days before that was going to be finalized, um, the Islamist movement under the then leadership of the late Hassan Turabi, that many in the Middle East and the Muslim world know well, well the head uh, of, for many decades of the Islamist movement in Sudan, collaborated uh, with Omar Bashir in the military, overthrew the civilian democracy at the time, and ushered in 30 years of authoritarian rule. Um, very much under the ideology of the Islamist movement as orchestrated and elaborated by Hassan Turabi. Um, the, these um, 30 uh, years um, established uh, an Islamic uh, or Islamist rather deep state uh, that is very important for your listeners to understand with respect to the present conflict. This um, state that was built, this Islamist authoritarian state that was built by the Islamist movement in collaboration with um, or cooperation and or rather partnership with um, the Umar, Umar Bashir and the military um, had a number of pillars in Sudan uh, or that rather the Islamist at the time called it in Arabic a policy of Temkin, a policy of empowerment to empower the Islamist movement and consolidate their rule. This uh, policy of Tamkin had about three very important pillars. In fact, the Islamist movement in Sudan called them pillars. Um, the first one was to use the levers of the state to um, alter the political economy of the country in ways that would enable them to command and control the domestic uh, economy, both the public sector and the private sector. That was an, a crucial part of Hassan Turabi's idea and goal and the goal of the Islamist movement. So that's the, the first pillar that's very important. The second pillar was to consolidate their rule in civil society. And they did this by purging from the bureaucracy, expelling and detaining and oftentimes torturing um, non-Islamists who were part of the large bureaucracy of the country, replacing them with those most loyal to the Islamist movement. Uh, so these two pillars begin to establish a very deep Islamist authoritarian state. But a third pillar is one that your listeners should really uh, pay attention to for those interested in the current conflict, because it factors in directly. And this third pillar was to uh, factionalize and multiply the security apparatus of the country. Um, and to undermine uh, the standing national army. This was done for two reasons. Number one, the Islamist authoritarian regime under uh, nominally Omar Bashir, who later consolidated his rule under uh, the party called the National Congress Party. Uh, this pillar was essential in the sense that it was designed to um, prevent any other military coups against this Islamist authoritarian government. That was number one. The other important goal of this factionalization of the security apparatus was to forestall 
any efforts at popular pro-democracy uprisings. So it had um, two interrelated objectives. Um, and the way that they went about doing this was to create uh, multiple militias, uh, most importantly, the popular defense forces that concentrated themselves in Khartoum and the urban areas. Uh, these were the foot soldiers of the Islamist movements. They later were um, sent to South Sudan and the central part of the country, the Juba Mountains, to um, um, uh, um, execute what the government, the Islamist regime, called a jihad war or a jihadist war against uh, southern Sudanese and um, Sudanese in the Nuba Mountains who were in insurgency. Uh, that's the popular defense forces. Uh, another important, uh, of course, force was the uh, NISS, um, which is the National Intelligence and Security Services. Um, this becomes um, a state within a state, so to speak, rather than um, leaving the security of uh, the city and the country to the National Standing Army. It was this security apparatus, this security organ that was get, then uh, designed to um, really forestall any kind of uprising and resistance against the regime. And finally, if you don't, uh, I know you have a lot of questions, but it's uh, crucial. Finally, was the establishment of the militia called at that time the Janjaweed. Uh, the Janjaweed uh, is extremely important because it was uh, utilized by the Bashir regime to put down the insurgency of Darfur in 2003. Um, this um, uh, militia uh, begins in 2003, and one of its members at the time uh, was or came to be Muhammad Hamdan Begalo, known in Arabic in Sudan as Hanekti. Um, he is uh, a central player in the present uh, conflict. And so this is very important to keep in mind. From there, then we can uh, begin to tell the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm, of uh, the I want to, yeah, I want you, Dr. Medani, to move forward to 2019 and the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir. Was it a popular uprising or was it uh, a coup d'etat? What, what happened to Omar al-Bashir? It was absolutely a popular uprising uh, beginning in December uh, 2018, lasting until April 2019, at the time when uh, Umar Bashir was um, was ousted. And as uh, many of your listeners will know, it uh, took on, of course, very much the same kind of character as many of the Arab uprisings that occurred in Tunisia um, and in, in Egypt earlier and uh, followed, of course, uh, in Algeria and other countries in Syria later on during the same time. It was a very wide-scale popular uprising, and unprecedented in its scale, unprecedented in its length. It encompassed the entire population of, uh, of civil society in Sudan, different social classes, and most importantly, different regions. This popular uprising arose up against uh, the authoritarian regime of Omar Bashir, managed to overthrow him in um, early April of 2019. And it is following that that we uh, have um, the prominence and emergence of um, the Galu, the head of the uh, Janjaweed, or rather what came to be known under his um, uh, authority as uh, the Rapid Support Forces, the R RSF. Um, it is at this that uh, this- Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Go it's ahead, Professor. This story that the the um, the, the this uh, kind of the the antecedents of this conflict begin. It's very important to understand that um, in um, it, after the ouster of Omar Bashir, there were attempts by what we call in Sudan the remnants of the Islamist regime of the National Congress Party, particularly organized around the military. Um, at, um, 
around something called um, the Committee of uh, the Security Intelligence Committee. The Security and Intelligence Committee of the Sudanese Armed Forces is uh, the one that essentially has taken control uh, for many decades of the armed forces. And they are essentially members of the Islamist movement uh, and uh, the remnants, as we call them, of the National Congress Party of Bashir. Bashir appointed all of them, including Abdel Fattah Burhan, who's currently the general and head of the Sudan Armed Forces. Uh, following the ouster of Bashir, they tried to uh, reform, so to speak, um, the revolution by uh, suggesting that uh, Ibn Auf, another general, would take over and oversee elections. Uh, because of the lack of trust on the part of the um, of Sudanese um, civil society and the revolutionaries, um, the, uh, the protest continued, demanding full civilian government. Um, you know, later on in August 2019, following a massacre against uh, protesters, or rather, um, revolutionary activist in a sit-in in front of the army headquarters. This happened on June 3rd, 2019, uh, where um, the sit-in was essentially attacked by forces, uh, both of the military, but also of the rapid support forces, killing over 100 uh, young people um, to expel them and to try to return to the authoritarian rule. Protests continued. Finally, there was a compromise in August 2019 between uh, the military under the leadership of Burhan, uh, who is now the head of the Sudan Armed Forces, and civilian leaders to uh, form a partnership uh, 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 that is a coalition government um, uh, that was to oversee, uh, first of all, draft a constitution, oversee uh, a civilian government, and uh, then ultimately oversee elections. Um, this uh, was a very precarious and fragile uh, coalition between a very strong uh, security apparatus in the military and civilian leaders who had not really participated in politics for almost three decades. Uh, on the military side, it was led by Burhan, who became the head of the Sovereign Transitional Military Council, and he appointed the same man that he is in conflict with today, and that is de Gallo as his deputy chairman of the Sovereign Military Council. The idea under international auspices was that they were going to eventually uh, cede power uh, to a civilian uh, government uh, following about, um, at that time it was uh, 22 months, um, and then the civilian government would go ahead and oversee uh, the transition to a full, a full civilian democracy. Um, before that deadline was met um, on October 2021, um, and this is really the catalyst for the present conflict, um, as the deadline was approaching, the military, not only Burhan, but also Hemeti, realized that if a civilian transition would actually be successful and occur, that they will, would lose not only their political power in the country, but also the vast wealth that they had accumulated over uh, decades. Um, and it mm -hmm. is at that point that they both conspired, and it's very important for your listeners to understand that the same um, uh, generals who are uh, fighting each other at the moment conspired together and collaborated to overthrow a very fragile civilian government headed by, at that time, the civilian prime minister, um, Abdullah Hamdok. Um, this uh, is very, very important because following that, protest continued. I just want to emphasize uh, some of uh, the, the rigor and the kind of resilience of, uh, of uh, the popular uprising. Um, instead of acquiescing 
uh, to this military coup. The protest in Sudan among uh, the resistance committees and a whole swath of civil society organizations, groups and unions and parties continued almost on a daily basis. Uh, in other words, um, Burhan and Hemeti were not able to actually consolidate their rule and for 15 months were not even able to actually appoint civilian bureaucrats into the, uh, to the government. There was and has been no government since that time. Yes, uh, doctor, I was uh, uh, and I am following uh, a lot of uh, accounts on Twitter. This is the only way we can uh, know what is happening on the ground, the music, uh, the, uh, the, the civil society the beautiful young men and women in Sudan, um, like you said, every day in the streets. But uh, let me just remind our listeners that they're listening to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. My co-host Ahmed Bidir and myself are talking to Dr. Khalid Mustafa Midani, who is Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies, also Chair of African Studies at McGill University. Dr. Khalid, why did these two men eventually uh, started uh, to compete among themselves. Of course, if you and our listeners have been following, and I know you have been following the Arab Spring that you alluded to, uh, um, whatever was happening or did not happen or was not achieved uh, in the eyes of people who rose against these uh, um, dictators and authoritarian systems, where there was foreign intervention and Arab for uh, intervention. When I say foreign people think only of the West, but I'm talking about regional Arab countries. Is there a hand uh, of any uh, Arab country that is involved in uh, quelling this popular uprising of the people, of trying to get uh, military rulers uh, to take over the country and not have really uh, a full wholesome democracy uh, starting in an Arab country? Yes, absolutely, Samar. I think that this occurs in every uh, Arab country and in the context of these pro-democracy popular uprisings. In the case of Sudan, your listeners would, um, you know, uh, it would be very, very useful for them to just look at the map and look at uh, the geostrategic importance of Sudan. It not only borders seven countries in the region, in the Middle East, North Africa, and, uh, um, you know, um, in West Africa, uh, you know, the Sahel region, Central Africa and East Africa, but it also lies uh, along the very important strategic um, um, Red Sea and Indian Ocean. Um, and that is uh, extremely important. It has historical linkages and political ones uh, throughout throughout the region. Uh, with respect directly to the interventions, there is absolutely no question the United Arab Emirates um, had uh, supported and um, uh, Hemeti in two very important ways. One of them is that he built his fortune as a militia commander out of the smuggling and trade in illicit gold, what we now call conflict gold. Most of that gold, about 80% or over 80%, is smuggled actually to the markets in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. And so the economic kind of linkages here tell you a story that's very important. In addition to that, um, and as you know, Samar, all of these countries are um, intimately connected. The war in Yemen, the devastating war in Yemen um, that um, involved Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates also involved Sudan in the sense that by uh, 2015 and certainly 2017, there were hundreds of thousands of uh, Sudanese um, mercenary soldiers sent to 
uh, fight alongside Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen. Um, and those were sent by Hemeti in collaboration with Burhan uh, in return um, for um, really millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in their coffers. So here you immediately see the proxy kind of relationship between Hemeti as a militia commander and also Saudi Arabia and particularly the United Arab Emirates. During the revolution itself, Samar, in um, uh, when it began, and particularly in uh, 2019, um, before the massacre of the young activist, um, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates sent about $3 billion to the Central Bank of Sudan. It was their way to stabilize and forestall uh, the pro-democracy push and essentially to support um, the government of, uh, of Omar, um, of uh, Burhan, of the military. Um, Egypt, of course, is... Uh, everyone knows is very supportive of Burhan because they prefer a leader that they can work with. Burhan and uh, Sisi went to, uh, believe it or not, uh, military school together in Alexandria. They have close personal relationship, but more importantly, of course, um, Sudan figures prominently as the most important security file for Egypt in the region. That is for two reasons. One of them, of course, is that any kind of democratization and popular a pro-democracy government would in fact influence uh, the very close relationships Sudanese have with Egyptian civil society. Uh, that is uh, without question. Another, of course, is a reliable military leader would not only so-called promise stability and loyalty, but he'd, he'd also safeguard the interest of Egypt a lot of the Nile waters, which are so essential. In other words, uh, in the context of the brewing conflict between Ethiopia and Egypt over the Nile waters and the establishment of the Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, as you probably know and the entire world should know. Uh, that conflict between Egypt and um, and Ethiopia, from their perspective, is nothing short of an existential one. Here, Sudan and the loyalty of uh, someone like Burhan to Egypt would play an extremely important role. And this is why in this conflict, Hemeti actually captured, as you probably know, in the beginning of this battle, um, Egyptian soldiers in uh, the northern city of Medawi that were conducting joint military operations with the troops of Burhan, the Sudan Armed Forces. Here we see a linkage that's not only um, uh, indirect, but very direct. It's well known to uh, everyone in the region and certainly analysts that these forces combined then forestall and weaken uh, at least the balance uh, between uh, the pro-democracy civil society that represents the majority of Sudanese and the very, very strong uh, coercive and security apparatus uh, that now is actually in conflict with each other. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Medani. I think my co-host Ahmed has a few questions for you now. Go ahead, Ahmed. Yes, um, thank you, uh, Dr. Medani. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. It's my last day of fasting, uh, I hope, and so I'm a little, you know, kind of still slow at this hour for some reason. But um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Israel's role in what's happening or what has happened uh, in recent months um, in Sudan. Um, are both sides united as far as their you know, the, the current, I guess, military generals, uh, these rivals, um, in their relations with Israel or their perspective um, on how things should go, you know, move forward uh, with uh, Israel and the Palestinian issue. Are you um, asking me specifically about the Abraham Accords? 
Yeah, the, you know, Sudan, you know, participated or in the Abraham Accords and had this kind of what they call normalization with the state of Israel. Did both sides of the military, did the military and the rapid um, support forces, you know, were they on the same page with this? And do they have established relations with Israel? They do not have established formal relationship with is- Israel. The Abraham Accords uh, essentially was um, mediated and negotiated with Burhan and not Hemeti, not so much with the paramilitary militia, um, but at the time um, there was no um, opposition on his part because he was collaborating with Abdel Fattah Burhan, the general. And that had to do with the context of um, removing sanctions from Sudan. It was a Faustian deal, so to speak, in the sense that um, the condition for removing um, three decades of sanctions, um, because prior to that in the 1990s, Sudan was declared a country that uh, sponsored terrorism. Essentially, uh, in order to remove those sanctions, um, the Trump administration at the time pressured um, Burhan and Hamdok, who was also um, the civilian uh, uh, prime minister, to uh, sign the Abraham Accords. There was no formalization. Um, the civilian prime minister at the time, Abdullah Hamdok, and the majority, and not the majority, all of the civilian political parties that were involved in that partnership um, made it very clear that they would not be able to formally um, uh, finalized the Abraham Accords with Israel because they were overseeing a transition to democracy. And it was very important that in that context um, of um, and following elections in Sudan, if that did occur, then the uh, parliament, the Sudanese parliament would have to vote. That is the Sudanese people would have to vote with respect uh, to normalizing the relationship with Israel. The result has been, if you don't mind me saying, it's not only a cold um, um, accord uh, as, you know, as like the Camp David one, but it's uh, it's not even official, it's not formal. The, the real uh, relationship has been, unfortunately for the Sudanese uh, pro-democracy activist, is uh, collaborations logistically around surveillance that has played a very important role in putting down uh, the, the protest. And that is surveillance, um, uh, arms, uh, those kind of technical support from Israel that given to Burhan and these forces, security forces, that has uh, really played a, an important role in the, the repression of these pro-democracy activists. Uh, with respect to the formal relationship between Israel and um, Sudan, it was really very much uh, um, not formalized and very much at the behest, I would uh, I would argue, and most people know, uh, utilizing Sudan on, on the part of the uh, United Arab Emirates, um, even more than Saudi Arabia, in order to use Sudan as a proxy for their own uh, relationship with Israel. And that is really important to keep in mind. Um, I would say that as a geostrategic um, uh, calculations change on the part of the Gulf countries, particularly with respect to their rapprochement with Iran, what we're going to see, and this is my prediction, is an increasing reticence, even on the part of the Arab Gulf countries, to pursue those kind of things with respect to the accords. And now we see very little discussion about that in Sudan. Finally, I want to conclude that I've been asked this question many times, and uh, I think that it's unanimous that the majority of Sudanese actually have no intention and do not give support for uh, an accord that is signed by authoritarian military leaders, the same leaders that have cost the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Sudanese. And I think it's very important for your listeners to understand that just as Sudanese are fighting uh, against militarization and authoritarianism in Sudan, uh, those uh, actors who actually attempt to uh, normalize relationship with Israel are considered deeply illegitimate. 
I think that your listeners, particularly from the Arab countries, will understand that right away. Right. Um, okay, so if you mentioned the role of uh, uh, the UAE and uh, how are they trying to use this or expand their proxy activities in in the region and and you know you mentioned that the prior government was predominantly islamist and they installed many of the bureaucrats uh, what some would call the deep state um you know naturally uh, a country like the UAE would be in opposition um to that type of ideology or that type of political islam being present so how are they getting involved in you know uh, in this in the current crisis uh, and leading up to it that is such an important question uh, because um, there is no question that their initial support and their continued support until recently of Hemeti had very much to do not only with their relationships um, financially and geostrategically in the region, um, but it uh, really had very much to do with their opposition to uh, the Islamist uh, movement in general and, and the one in Sudan as well. From their perspective, from the United Arab Emirates, supporting um, Hemeti, the militia leader, the paramilitary leader, um, has the added advantage of someone who is uh, opposed to the Islamist movement and is not part of the Islamist movement. And that is why uh, there has been uh, in recent years this conflict between Burhan uh, being supported by Egypt and the UAE supporting his rival, his current rival. That becomes really important. What Saudi Arabia and the UAE did in this context is to participate in what is called the quadrant. Um, that is the United States, the, the, the UK, Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates, to bring you a little bit up to date, begin to oversee the negotiations around what we call and what has been called in Sudan, the framework agreement. This begins um, in uh, right after the military coup as um, the protest in Sudan continued on a daily basis. My analysis is that these countries, including Egypt, would have preferred that there would be a consolidated military regime. But what they found instead is the resilience of the Sudanese opposition. Uh, both the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and I know for a fact even personally, were really surprised at the continued persistence of the pro-democracy activists on a daily basis. And they were also perplexed at the fact that the military was not able to consolidate its rule in a way that they provide their own interest in the in Sudan. And so what they did is, in fact, they were forced by the pro-democracy protesters in Sudan to seek another solution. And that solution came under the guise of the framework agreement uh, with in cooperation with the with the United States and um, and the UK, in which they decided that they would actually support a transition to a civilian democracy as long as that they were had a role in overseeing it. And this framework agreement is really catalyzed the present conflict from the perspective of the UAE and the Saudi Arabia. They eventually came to terms, particularly as the, the their involvement in Ye Yemen, or they tried, attempted to see to seek a, a more peaceful so solution, uh, or rather exit option in Yemen. Uh, they decided that it was better to be involved in this persistent kind of insistence on the part of Sudanese people to see uh, um, a transition to civilian uh, democracy. And so they um, uh, really instigated uh, with the United States and the UK and the United Nations uh, process in which uh, to bring the military leaders um, uh, to the table with civilian leaders. And it is this framework agreement that um, 
becomes a really important aspect of the present conflict. What the framework agreement stipulated uh, really raised uh, certain issues that finally brought uh, this conflict between uh, hitherto, um, you know, generals that had cooperated over um, the killing of hundreds of thousands of uh, Darfurians in the West in the in two, in beginning in 2003 that had co cooperated uh, with, um, you know, sending, um, you know, mercenaries to Yemen that had cooperated and got money from the EU uh, to stop, um, you know, African refugees and, and migrants to Europe. Um, all of that uh, really hinged on a number of different uh, aspects of the framework agreement that was designed to see this uh, transition. Um, from the perspective of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, the idea was to participate in this transition um, and have an influence over the government that was to come. Importantly, Egypt refused to join, even though they were asked to join this negotiation. Uh, the Egyptian government, and here they are the more central mm -hmm. player, uh, decided that they would prefer to just support Burhan. Um, as you probably know, they became, it was cr cr uh, crystal clear that from the Egyptian perspective, um, a transition to a civilian democracy that uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, United Arab Emirates at the behest of the U.S. decided may be an option uh, for the Egyptians that was not acceptable. They refused to join the framework agreement negotiations. And they don't want they don't want uh, democracy or civilian governments on their southern border because obviously they don't have that where they are. But how do you explain that, you know, Abdel Fattah Sisi is uh, um, who has been crushing any type of uh, democ democracy and, you know, uh, has eliminated all political opposition in Egypt, especially waging a war on uh, Muslim politicians and Islamic movements, uh, including the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, is somehow supporting Burhan, another Abdel Fattah, they share the same first name, um, and and when he has Islamist roots and basically uh, there are remnants of the old, you know, Islamist regime in Sudan. So he's crushing Islamic uh, movement within Egypt, but somehow tolerating it in Sudan. That's a very important question. Um, if the Egyptian government, as powerful as it is, is not exactly omnipotent. And by that, I mean that uh, the idea of uh, the Egyptian government and Sisi in particular um, and the Egyptian regime is that they would support uh, what they call the integration of militias into the Sudan armed forces to strengthen the standing army. That's the rhetoric. That standing army then would uh, stabilize the country. And of course, Burhan uh, would be their ally. They feel that they have enough influence in Bur uh, with Burhan and they have instructed him over um, many a, a number of months and many a few years that um, they would uh, offer him full support as long as he would purge the Islamist remnants from the military. The miscalculation here, if you don't mind me saying, on the Egyptian part is that they don't really understand, I feel, or have full understanding of the kind of strength um, of the Islamist remnants, um, particularly organized around the, the top brass of the Sudan armed forces. Um, they saw very, very well uh, in the past few months, even before the conflict, how Burhan um, and his allies in the military at the top brass in this committee were actually reappointing former members of the Islamist uh, movement and the National Congress Party into the bureaucracy and even in the military. 
Um, the Egyptians are um, uh, in a bind. On the one hand, they need to support Burhan and a standing army that would be loyal to them. On the other, they feel, and here I think there is a much hubris, that they would have enough influence to actually manage and convince and cooperate with Burhan in uh, getting rid of the remnants of the Islamist regime in the military. I can tell you because of the, the conflict uh, that is occurring, now it is clear that the strength of the Islamist remnants is far greater than even the Egyptian re regime envisioned. And here Egypt is finding itself in a quandary uh, and confused about the way forward, although they are very, very much uh, feel from their perspective, they have absolutely no option uh, except to support Burhan wholeheartedly and work with him in order to rid the military of this Islamist regime. regime. Will they be able to do that? From the Sudanese perspective, um, we feel that um, there is a great underestimation and miscalculation on the part of uh, Sisi's regime. When we say, you know, um, and I don't like the word Islamist, but that's the word they use for people who have um, politicians or public officials who have kind of um, Islamic ideology or they're practicing, I guess, or they use their religion to motivate their um, their activities or agenda but I are the the deep is a deep state within Sudan who had maybe Islamic roots um, including the general Abdel Fattah Borhan are really just Islamist in name only now and really had strayed far far away from their original teachings Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for saying that. It's, uh, you know, when we do these interviews, sometimes we have to speak in shortcuts for audiences. In Sudan, um, these Islamists are not ca called Islamists at all. Uh, they're either called Islamuyin, uh, as a reference to the trading of religion, uh, as uh, Sudanese say, but we call Sudanese uh, in the majority call them Kezan. Uh, it's a reference to a speech given in, in the 1990s by one of the you know, leaders of the National Islamic Front. The reason Sudanese call them Kizan is precisely your point, that um, no one uh, attributes uh, their movement or these individuals to, to religion as such, or even the previous Islamist movement associated with the Dawah, the grassroots call to Islam, as you as you know, which is very different. Uh, that What we have now, and that is why we call them in Sudan Fulul, remnants, uh, not uh, Islamists, but remnants of the National Congress Party, and these people are organized around the deep state related to very, very important economic interests. Uh, they control in many, by some estimation, over 60% of some of the most important commodity trading, uh, gum Arabic, gold, um, you know, uh, uh, sesame. Some of the most important commodities have come under the power of this deep state uh, that we call um, Kazan, um, you know, um, um, you know, um, merchants, so to speak, uh, for lack of better terms. So um, this is uh, uh, the important aspect of how Sudanese perceive these individuals, um, and that is that they are remnants of the National Congress Party, uh, but not um, even ideologically Islamist. They factionalized uh, um, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, and Hassan Turabi was even put in house arrest. And so what emerged after the, that are the embers of what was an Islamist uh, movement uh, at the grassroots. And what has remained is essentially, um, you know, uh, uh, individuals and groups that have deep, deep vested interests, not only for political power, but to maintain 
uh, their yeah. economic interest out of this deep state. I hope that makes sense because it's a very yes. It's uh, I mean, thank you for clarifying that. We're basically um, almost out of time. I just wanted to have you know have two more questions for you, and but you know please keep your responses brief because we're we're gonna have to cut the you know cut to the news soon. Um, so. Uh, the first, I guess, the um, uh, question would be, um, and, you know, Ramadan is setting in for some reason. I'm forgetting the first question, but the I second question. Ask, I can ask a question instead of you. Uh, but let well, me, I wanted to ask just, him, what, why should, Amer- should Americans care about what's happening in Sudan right now? <laughs> I guess our listeners. I wanted just to say uh, Eid Fatr Mubarak. It was just announced. Saudi Arabia, Dr. Medani and Ahmed Saeed. Uh, that they saw the, the moon? Yeah, I just saw it now. So wanted to tell you uh, Eid Fatr Mubarak. Oh, yeah. Salam. That's hard, I guess, for the people of Sudan to celebrate. I can't, I can't be quiet. I'm so happy. Alhamdulillah. I see that. That's really... It, it's I know. Sorry the conversation. But I can't. I can't. Your joy is, your joy is very... Uh, we can, we, it's very visible through the airwaves. It's finally well, I, over. The relief is here. Yeah, well, I mean, what I'd like to also emphasize is that throughout Ramadan and uh, in these recent days, of course, throughout Ramadan, but in these recent days, the majority of Sudanese have been fasting, even under the most uh, abysmal conditions and trapped even with very short uh, supplies of food and water. And people are helping each other. Uh, we have a tradition in Sudan, if you don't mind me saying, is that uh, you take your fatur out in the street um, and you share it with people uh, passing by. And uh, I think it may surprise some of your listeners that that tradition has continued even in the context of this uh, severe conflict in our city, in our cities. And so uh, another aspect, of course, is um, the horrible uh, kind of, um, you know, personalities and generals who have the audacity to uh, conduct this kind of conflict against their own people in the holy month of Ramadan. And so um, you can imagine the unanimity, unanimity of opposition and disgust uh, that Sudanese have uh, with respect to both both these generals. Well, we're basically out of time. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, for being on uh, True Talk. And we hope to have you again. We wish the best for Sudan. And I hope they get some sort of uh, reprieve for this um, during the holiday. Thanks again for joining us, uh, uh, Professor Medani from uh, University of McGill, McGill University in Canada. And um, happy Eid to you, uh, Summer, and to all our listeners out there. We hope to be here with you next week, same time, Thursday, 11 o'clock. As you say, you can tell your... uh, Muslim friends, Eid Saeed or Eid Mubarak or, you know, Eid Karim. Happy Eid. (laughs) Summer seems to be really happy about her Eid. Oh my gosh, you (laughs) can't. It's not yet. You got to wait until sunset. I know, no, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Qatar can agree on one thing. Trust me, I'm going (laughs) to. Summer sounds like you have you.